Welcome to the KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast Series, delivering fresh insights and perspectives around major accounting and financial reporting developments across a range of timely topics. We thank you for joining today. Hello, I'm John Barbagallo, a Managing Director at KPMG, and welcome to another installment in our podcast series regarding the new Inflation Reduction Act. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of diving a little deeper into the corporate alternative minimum tax with two of my colleagues from KPMG, Ashby Corum, a partner with Washington National Tax, and Matt Drucker, a partner in our Department of Professional Practice. Ashby and Matt have been closely monitoring tax legislation, and I want to thank them for joining us today. So Ashby, let's continue our discussion on the corporate AMT from the first episode. Tell us about the AMT and who it applies to. Thanks, John. The AMT is designed to be a minimum tax such that profitable entities, entities profitable from a financial statement perspective, actually pay some base level of tax, even though they may have certain exemptions or other reasons why they may not owe tax. It applies to taxpayers with a three-year average adjusted financial statement income, or AFSI, of over $1 billion, and corporate AMT is based on 15% of AFSI, so essentially provides a minimum of 15% rate. Interesting. So adjusted financial statement income, or AFSI, so this is certainly a new concept related to corporate AMT. So what exactly does AFSI represent? Actually, it's not a completely new concept. There was a brief experiment in the 1980s tying the former AMT regime to book numbers, but it was not renewed and it was allowed to expire. It was criticized for having a detrimental effect on the quality of financial reporting and had some other adjustments that some people didn't necessarily feel were fair to taxpayers. But as far as the current version, as I mentioned, AFSI stands for Adjusted Financial Statement Income. And so the process essentially starts with book net income, so the net income in a company's set of financial statements, and then has a series of required adjustments. Some of those are adjustments to federal and foreign income taxes to get the amount closer to pre-tax income in the financial statements. But then there are also certain adjustments where it actually uses the regular tax item rather than the financial statement item, and those include depreciation, pensions, and wireless spectrum among a few other adjustments. I see, got it. So what we know, Ashby, is the IRA does not increase the corporate statutory rate, but it does introduce this new AMT. So what happens when a taxpayer actually pays the corporate AMT? Overall, the AMT is designed to work a little bit like a deposit. So the the actual amount of AMT is really just the excess of the amount computed so, you know, looking at your AFSI times 15% and the excess of that over the amount you have otherwise paid under the regular tax. And so you pay the AMT, but it also creates a credit carry forward that can be carried forward indefinitely. Then in future years, when a company's regular tax is in excess of the amount computed under the AMT system, they get to utilize that deposit to reduce their taxes down to that AMT amount. 
And so companies may be paying corporate AMT either because they just have timing items where income or deductions land in different years for financial reporting versus tax, or could be for more permanent type items. And so to extend a company's paying corporate AMT for timing type items, they'll tend to be able to utilize that credit over time and ultimately get back to the regular tax rate. And remember, the corporate tax rate is 21% in the U.S., so company can have some level of permanent favorable items and still ultimately come back and pay the regular tax over its lifetime. Thanks, Ashby. Very helpful. So, Matt, turning to you, I could almost hear all the accounting questions coming on deferred taxes and valuation allowances, but let's just start with the basics. So tell us, how does the basic accounting work for the corporate AMT? Sure, John. And one thing to remember, you know, AMT regimes have been around for quite a long time, as Ashby mentioned before, in several different forms. And the last one existed through the Tax Cuts and Job Act of 2017. So the accounting for AMT is pretty much consistent with what has been done in the past. And luckily enough, ASC 740, the FASB issued, provides us with a little bit of a practical solution for accounting for AMT, whereby the incremental tax associated with the AMT is recorded as incurred, and you still continue to measure your deferred tax assets and liabilities at the regular rates. So essentially, you account for them as separate uh, regimes, if you will, one in regular tax and one AMT. Okay, so not too bad, not too much change there, but what about the valuation allowances? That's a good question, John. There are really two different aspects that need to be considered associated with AMT valuation allowance. Firstly, as it relates to deferred tax assets for AMT credit carry forwards, which are generated when a company pays AMT, ASC 740 requires that a company's expectation of its AMT status be considered. This is important because as companies can be subject to AMT in perpetuity and only paying AMT tax, in that case, it's often difficult for a company to demonstrate that the benefits of the AMT tax credit carry forwards are more likely than not going to be realized and that such a valuation allowance would be needed. As it relates to deferred taxes other than AMT tax credit carry forwards, we believe a company has a policy choice about whether or not they need to record a valuation allowance. A company may elect to consider its AMT status when evaluating its deferred tax assets under its regular tax regime. So for example, a company that has NOL carry forwards may not be able to benefit from all those NOLs if it anticipates always being a perpetual AMT tax payer. So in that case, a company may, if it's their policy, record a valuation allowance associated with those net operating loss carry forwards. I think I should point out one important thing on timing. If a company does elect to consider AMT status in its valuation allowance assessment, any initial allowance is required to be recognized in the period of enactment of the law, which in this case was in August 2022. So third quarter for calendar year-end companies. Yeah, thanks, Matt. A lot to absorb there. So one last question for Ashby. It would seem to me that a lot of companies are now going to want to try and minimize AFSI to reduce the chance of have to pay AMT. So how about a company that wants to change an accounting policy to minimize AFSI? Can they do that? 
To change an accounting policy, a company would have to establish that the new policy that they're changing to is preferable to the old one. And there's actually very specific guidance in U.S. GAAP concerning how that interacts with the company's tax profile. So within ASC Topic 250, which is the guidance on accounting changes and error corrections, it's very clear that the preferability of an accounting policy cannot be exclusively based on a beneficial tax result. Got it. Okay, very good. Matt Nashby, thanks so much. I appreciate you joining us today to walk us through the new corporate AMT and the accounting implications for preparers. I look forward to having the both of you on future episodes to get more information on the IRA and CHIPS Act. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast. For more in-depth financial reporting developments, analysis, and podcast episodes, please visit frv.kpmg.us and be sure to subscribe today. Also, we are social. You can also follow us on LinkedIn at KPMG Financial Reporting View or with hashtag KPMG FRV.